0: Scout Sunday, uh, which is, I think, a day that once a year, those who are part of the Scouts program wear their uniforms to church. Um, I was not a Scout myself, but I did go to one meeting when I was a kid, about seven or eight years old, and it was at a house, and a person had cooked this awful-smelling fish beforehand, and I literally, I I almost choked the whole time, and so I never went back and got involved in Scouts, and... uh, I have kind of regretted that in part, um, but I also say that as a lesson for those of you who do lead the scout program. Uh, Be careful what you cook before they come. But uh, in all all seriousness, thank you for what you do to help raise uh, next generation of children. Uh, As Tom said today, we're talking about the topic of confession and we are taking a look at a Psalm that was written hundreds and hundreds of years ago, but it might as well have been written yesterday because of uh, how relevant it is to life. And I hope that you will find that this morning. Uh, The psalm begins by telling us uh, who the happiest people are. And if you were to go and find the average person on the street and ask them that question, who do you think the happiest people in the world are, they might say something like, well, it's probably those who are very rich or famous or on the Hollywood A-list, the culturally elite Or they might say that it's those who have the most free times and interesting hobbies or maybe the best personalities. Maybe they would say that it's those who have the tightest circle of friends or the most close-knit families, the ones who take the nicest vacations or whose children are most well-adjusted. They might say that it's the beautiful or the athletic or the confident or the popular the people's lives who just seem to be smooth and effortless. But what's important to know is that the Bible does not accept that kind of thinking. Instead, believe it or not, the Bible describes the happiest people in the world as those who have lied and cheated, uh, people who have stolen and lusted, those who have hated and betrayed. It's people who have struggled sexually and been trapped by bad habits and addictions. People have been through ugly breakups and seen friendships fall apart, and they've been the cause. It's people who have lived self-centered lives, some of them as bullies and others of them as cowards, but all of them have felt in their life the sting of regret and shame. They're people with serious shortcomings and flaws, uh, people like you and me. But they are the happiest people in all the world for one reason, and that is this. God himself has forgiven them. That is the secret, David would say, to being happy. This psalm, Psalm 32, was, was, was written for us to show us how broken people might be mended. And, and this morning, if you walked into this room struggling because you've broken something in your life, uh, if a choice that you have made sometime in the past, near or far, has filled you with regret or has made you feel distant and unworthy before God, if you're suffering from some kind of a self inflicted wound, no matter what the depth of it is or the kind, you came to the right place this morning. And what my hope is, is that you might leave experiencing something very different from what you came here with today. A psalm 32 was written by King David, he was the second king of Israel. And it's one of seven psalms in the Old Testament that's called a penitential psalm. That is, it's a psalm of confession. And in this psalm, David describes his own personal experience with guilt and forgiveness. And and the psalm can be broken down very simply into about four parts. First of all, what David does in this psalm is he tells us about happy people. Secondly, he tells us about miserable people. Thirdly, he tells us how to make the shift from being a miserable person to being a happy person. And then finally, he gives some real heartfelt uh, personal advice that come out of his experience. And so this morning, what I want to do basically is just follow that pattern. I'm going to talk about those Four things just as as David did. And as I said, the first thing that he begins with is just a description of who happy people are. And here's what he writes if you look in verse 1 and 2. He says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Let me give you just a few definitions from this passage that I hope will be helpful for you. First of all, when David uses the word blessed here, uh, when that is used in the Hebrew language to speak of a person, what it literally means is how happy, okay? Because you can take that word blessed and replace it if you want to with the words how happy. So what David (laughs) says here is he says, how happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, Now, the word transgression pictures a rebellion or a revolt. So to get a feel for the word, what you might imagine is that there's a great king who has an advisor who has also been his lifelong friend, and the advisor stages a rebellion against that king to try to steal the kingdom. But he's caught red-handed in the middle of it, and he's ushered before the king, who is seated with all of his guards around him, and this advisor is expecting certain death. But in this case, his transgression is forgiven, and the great weight of his crime, which sits on his shoulders, is lifted off of his back, and he is restored to the position that he had in the first place, as if he had never done what he did. And David says, how happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven? He says, how happy is the one whose sin is covered? Now, in the Bible, the definition of sin is basically to miss the mark. And what's pictured here is that God says to a person, that's the target, I want you to aim right there towards that. But what the person does is somehow or another, they end up aimed that way. They release the arrow and it goes exactly the opposite way that we're supposed to, which is not good. But in this case, David said, that sin is covered. It's it's atoned for. God is going to take that mistake and put it in in the past. He's not ever going to hold it against you. He's not going to ever put it over your head. So what you get to do is you get to stop beating yourself up over that because God isn't going to do that. And God holds that sin, he says, as far as east is from the west. And David says, how happy is the one whose sin is covered. He says, how happy is the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, as if we didn't get it with the first two things he says, right? He's just hammering it home. How happy is this person who has no iniquity? Iniquity basically means to stray from the path. So God says, here's the road, it's a paved highway, here's the boundaries, I don't want you to go outside of them, and this person jumps the fence. But in this case, their iniquity is not counted. God says, I'm not going to hold you liable for this. You've done the crime, but you don't have to pay the time. It's like someone who knows that they ought to be sent to prison for the crime that they've done, and yet they're free. And David says, how happy is the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity? And finally, he says, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So many people in this world live in in a constant state of anxiety and fear that they're going to be caught in something, whatever it is. It can be many different things. But you see, what David is pointing out here is that those who have been forgiven by God have no need for secrets. They're not constantly looking over their shoulder to make sure nobody has seen what they've done, and they have nothing to hide from their friends or from their family or from their spouse or even from God himself. And and David describes this like it's the ultimate freedom in the world. I can just be me. I have nothing to hide. I can walk with my head up because my spirit is is clear. There's no deceit. And David says, how happy is the one in whose spirit there is no deceit? This is how David defines happiness. This is what he says is how you become a happy person. It's having everything that you've ever done wrong expunged from your record. And he says this not just in theory, This experience is his personal experience. He's he's felt this. He's seen this. He's tasted it himself. But so that all of us can relate, he reminds us that he's been on the other side as well. Uh, David knows what joy is, but he also knows what misery is, and he describes it very poetically here. Verse 3 and 4. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Okay? What what David is describing here basically is guilt. He says this is what guilt feels like. Now, David knew a thing or two about guilt Uh, The Bible tells us of one very serious time that he felt guilt. Um, We're told that David uh, used his his prestige and power as a king to seduce a woman whose name was Bathsheba, who was married to another man at the time. Uh, She got pregnant. David got scared, so he had her husband killed. David was an adulterer and a murderer. And then to make matters worse, there was a long time, at least nine months, where he kept this thing hidden. Um, it was hidden from all the people who were around him, but he also kept it from God. He, he never went to God to confess this. And it's possible that David is describing this situation here in this psalm, but it's possible it was something else, okay? Uh, it, it could have really been anything. Psalm 51, it, it, it tells us that he's describing this sin with Bathsheba, which is another one of the penitential psalms, but this one we don't know. It could be anything. But what he says is this, is he says, listen, when I kept silent about my sin, that is, when I pretended that nothing was wrong, I didn't go to God, I kind of shoved it under the rug and tried to move on, he says, my bones wasted away. Uh, The bones of a person represent their whole structure. It's like their entire being. And to David, his guilt felt like a cancer of the bone." I don't know a lot about cancer, but I would imagine if a person is going to have cancer, the bone is probably not the place that they want cancer, right? Maybe the bones and the blood would be the two places that we would most fear getting cancer. The reason that we don't want bone cancer is in part because it is so hard to get rid of, and secondly, because it poisons your whole body. And David says here, I think that's what guilt is like, too. Um, this last week, as I was preparing for this message, I had an opportunity to think about guilt, you know, and I, I sort of went back through my life and tried to think about my own experiences with guilt, which was not fun. I don't recommend that anybody do that. Um, but anyway, what I tried to do is I tried to think, what was my first experience of feeling feeling guilty that I can remember And the first thing I can remember, the first time I can remember really feeling guilty was when I was about 10 years old. And uh, my younger sister and I were at home in our family room, and we were roughhousing. And, um, you know, we were just playing around, and and she fell somehow. I don't remember if I was responsible or not, but um, she fell, and she hit her head on our fireplace, which was right there. And she hit it really hard. You know when kids scream, sometimes you can sort of tell how bad they hurt themselves? Hers was right up there on the scale. And I remember she was just howling. And my dad came in, and he scooped her up. And he had a rocking chair there. And he was rocking back and forth with her, he obviously very worried. And my sister was screaming. And I started trying to say something to my dad over this howling that she was doing. And I was saying, Dad, Dad, it wasn't my fault. I, I promise. I didn't have anything to do with it. She just tripped and fell and hit her head. And I'm not responsible, Dad. And And my father... Um, taught me a really painful lesson at that moment. Um, he didn't do it rudely or meanly or anything like that, but but he said, Paul, your sister is hurting, and all you care about right now is whether or not you're going to get in trouble for it. And I remember realizing that what he said was exactly true, and it was like, I, I, like the, the blinders came off my eyes, and The irony for me at that moment was in attempting to escape this blame, this guilt, I ended up feeling like a double sense of guilt, if that makes sense. I hate the feeling of guilt. I cannot stand guilt. If you've read the the comic uh, Calvin and Hobbes, there's one comic where Calvin says, there's no problem so awful that you can't add some guilt to it and make it even worse. (laughs) <laughs> that is so true. Can you think of any worse feeling in the world than guilt? I can't. You know, this thing that happened to me was almost 30 years ago, but I can remember it like it was yesterday. And when I thought back to it this week, the first time I thought of it, you know what's, what's amazing? Is I actually felt what I felt in that moment. And that is a unique power, I think, of guilt. Think about this for a second. With pain and with pleasure, you can remember both of those things, but you can't re-experience them. Okay? So with pleasure, you can have the best cheeseburger in the whole world, and you can remember the fact that you had that cheeseburger, but you can't draw within you the taste. You can't re-taste it. With pain, you can remember a time you bumped your head on the table, but you can't go back and re-feel bumping your head. But with guilt, you can re-experience it. You can go back and feel it all over again. I can be that 10-year-old boy standing in front of my dad and my sister ashamed. And that is part of what makes guilt so dangerous is its staying power. It's so hard to remove the cancer of guilt from our bones. Uh, Many people are haunted by mistakes that that they committed years and years ago. For many people, it's, it's sexual sin. For some people, it's a broken relationship or a divorce. It's a way maybe that they wounded somebody in life. Many people have regrets that that go back all the way to their childhood or go back to a time when they were parenting, that they wish they had done things different or a way that they spent money. It could be anything in the world, but they've done everything that they can possibly do to right the wrong. But still, that guilt hangs on. And every time it comes to mind, there's just this moment where they're back in that place again. And when it comes to mind, like David, they groan inwardly. Oh, why did I do that? And it hurts, and it won't go away. It's like walking through life with a wound that just won't heal. It's like a cancer in your bones. And for others of us, we, we wish that our guilt was a little further back, right? Some of us in this room, I'm sure, we think back to what happened a month ago. Or a week ago, or, or even just last night, and it is for us, even this morning, right now, like a crushing weight. It saps away your joy, takes away your freedom, and instead it gives you anxiety and fear. Well, a little hope this morning is that this psalm that was written hundreds and hundreds of years ago, that same guilt was experienced by David. You you aren't alone. He's been there, too. And and David says, it was so bad that I kept silent to God. I said nothing, but to myself all day long, I'm just groaning and groaning and groaning, silent to God, groaning on the inside. David is miserable, okay? But David writes for us something that's incredibly helpful. Again, his experience. This is what he did. He's about to tell us to move from misery to happiness. And he tells us in verse 5. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Catch this part. It's the last sentence. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin." What does David say that he does to move from misery to joy? He says he confesses. So what is confession? How does a person make a proper confession before God? Well, it's very simple. David tells us exactly in that sentence. Here's what it is. It's acknowledging our sin to God instead of hiding our sin from God. Acknowledging our sin to God instead of hiding our sin from God. So to confess to God means that we just stop running. And we turn around and we own it. A confession to God is meant to be us lowering our defenses. And what we do is we agree with God, right? Instead of being up against God, I'm on my side, God's on his side, What I decide to do is, I actually go and take God's side instead of my own. I say to God, I've sinned. Here's how I've sinned. I'm really sorry. And you know what the amazing thing is about this psalm? It's just how short it is, right? David confesses and God forgives. That's it, that's all that it says. It seems so easy. When I was about 20 years old, I had kind of a crisis of faith, kind of a small crisis of faith related to this because I started thinking about the Christian faith and how simple it is, right? I mean, like I can have a huge weight, a lifetime of guilt on my shoulders. And if this is true, I can go to God, agree with him, and God will forgive me. And I thought to myself, the struggle that I have with that is it just seems like it would be too easy And I thought, how how can it really be true if it's so simple? And I I picked up a book at that time that I started reading that was given to me when I graduated from the high school group at this church. It was a book that was called My Utmost for His Highest. It's like a little daily reading book. Some of you might be familiar with it. But I remember reading through it, and I actually looked at the book last night. I, I had underlined this sentence that was written in the book that exactly spoke to my struggle at that time with the Christian faith. And the sentence was this The reason forgiveness is so easy for us is because it costs God so much. The reason that forgiveness is so easy for us is because it costs God so much. You see, it's not the power of the confession that earns us God's forgiveness. What the Bible would teach is that it is the power of the cross. Uh, Tom reminded us last week, I I loved this part of his message of just how great God is. If you were here this week, um, he he quoted the passage where it says that God, um, he measures the universe in the span of his hands, right? So you have this God who's just majestic. He knows all things. He's everywhere at one time. He created not just this planet and not just this universe, but people with all their weirdnesses and intricacies and animals which are so strange and wonderful and all the good big things in this world and all the good small things in this world God created. And yet we're told that God loves sinners in such a way that he gave up his majesty He set aside his robes and his throne and Jesus came to be a person on this earth just like we are, which is really, really hard to wrap our arms around, our mind around. But it says that he faced all the things that that, that people do in everyday life. Everything that there is to be tempted by, Jesus was tempted by too, except he resisted. He didn't fall in. He, He was the one who was perfect. And we're told that Jesus... By, by his own free will and, and out of his love for those who sinned, he went to the cross and he was beaten and stripped and mocked and that he was killed. This God who created the heavens and the earth died for the sins of mankind. And it's just hard to grasp the cost of that. It's hard to understand how this would break the heart of God the Father that we can confess and we can be forgiven because Jesus took our place. He took our punishment. All the hard work that needed to be done, he did. And when it comes to confession, I I often find, and I feel this in my own life too, that when we go to confess to God, there's, there's often this little voice inside of us that says, okay, God is not going to accept this confession unless I pay. So either it's got to be a really good confession, right? I've got to have just the right words, just the right tone. Or I've got to come to him with a list of things that now I'm going to do different, right? I've got to really, really work on this so that that, that God accepts me because of something that I could do. That's not a confession. A confession is just I, I lower my defenses and I say to God, God, you are right. I thank you that I don't have to pay. I thank you that you did. I thank you that you bear the cost that I might go free. And if cleaning up my own guilt is ever up to me, I'm lost. I'm ruined. It is only by the grace of God and the power of Christ that I am set free. That's why this is so short for us, is because it was so long and difficult for God and, and David says this, I came to you and I just acknowledged my sin instead of hiding my sin, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And David said, I'm, I'm done. It's done. I'm free. That's what he felt. If guilt is like a poison, then confession is dropping our defenses and asking God, grant us the antitoxin. Make us new. And and the blood of Jesus, which is kind of like the antitoxin, you might say, it, it covers our sin. The weight is removed. The debt is paid. The stain is clean. And what David says is, how happy is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. How happy is the one against whom God counts no iniquity, and now my spirit needs have no deceit. It's freedom. Well, David goes on and he mentions three very practical helps when it comes to confession that I just want to um, highlight just for a couple of minutes here. He says, uh, after God forgives his sin, he says in verse 6, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Okay, what does he mean by that? Well, I think what he's basically saying is, he's saying, listen, don't wait to confess until it's too late, okay? I don't know exactly what that means. I thought about it a lot this week. It it may be speaking to a person who has never confessed before. And so David is saying, look, what are you waiting for? There will be a time either when you die or if Christ Christ comes back in your lifetime, which he has promised at some point he will do, when it may be too late for you. Or he may be talking to a person who is already a believer, already a, um, forgiven for all of their sins, but but needs to be cleaned uh, so that their relationship with God can be restored, their enjoyment of that relationship, I, I should say. And maybe he's saying there, don't wait until your sin hardens you so much that you don't care to seek after God anymore. Right? Our conscience can be seared, and and so then we just ignore it, and it's not that, God isn't still there, but we don't find him anymore because we're, in some sense, blinded. I don't know exactly what it means, but the point here is this, that we ought to keep short accounts with God and not let things go. You know, the thing about guilt is when we let it sit and fester, it can very quickly feel very overwhelming. I moved uh, houses uh, about a a year and a half ago, and um, I put a lot of stuff in my garage we got settled in the house and i remember going out to my garage thinking man this is a project i gotta tackle but it's not a project i want to tackle and finally i set aside uh, like an afternoon on a saturday to do it and i walked out in my garage and there's all those boxes out there and i caught myself literally i stood there just looking at everything for five minutes you know saying like where am i going to start with all this you know i i was paralyzed i literally didn't know where to start and then i realized well Pick up a box, right? I mean, you just got to start someplace. Boy, with with guilt, I think the same is true. Some people feel like, I am such a mess. I've got so many boxes. Or I've got this one huge box that I don't even know how I could possibly begin to lift. And what they do is they say, well, I, I guess I'll maybe handle that another day. And they shut the door and they walk past it and pretend it's not there, but... Every day they feel worse because they know that they should have dealt with that yesterday, right? And then the, the pile begins to feel messier and bigger. Well, with confession in, in prayer, I, I think the best thing to do is just start someplace. I and mean, what we do in prayer is we just we just pick up a box, any box. We say, God, I really agree with you. I screwed up here. I really blew this and I am sorry, I have nothing to hide. I have no defense. It's not me against you. It's us against me, right? And I thank you that you sent Jesus so that I'm not stuck here. I thank you that this box is not up to me to find a place for. It's up to you to deal with. And I thank you that that heavy box, you're strong enough to deal with that one too. I thank you that Jesus died for this sin that I hold right before you, as well as all my other ones. And I love him for that. I love him that he would do that for me. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you that I can be free. Thank you that in my spirit, I can have no deceit. How happy am I that that's true? Why carry guilt around? Even little guilt, why carry it around? Why not live like we're free? We brush our teeth twice a day, right? And if we miss, we feel like disgusting in our mouth, don't we? We can go a long time without confessing. How much more important is it that we care for our hearts? So, David says, keep short accounts. How often should we confess our sin? I would say, anytime we need to. Whenever you need to. A lot better than carrying it around. Second thing David says is in verse 7. Oops, excuse me. Verse 7. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. What I think David is saying here is this. Hide in God, not from God. You're a hiding place for me, God. Hide in God, not from God. When we feel guilty about something... It is such a temptation to see God as our enemy and not our friend. Take an alcoholic, for instance, who all of a sudden, something has caught up with them and they feel incredible guilt. To them, in that moment, taking another drink is probably going to feel like the safe place, right? David says, no, see God as your safe place, right? God is a refuge from my sin. Sin is not a refuge from my God. And what we've got to remember is that the way that God wants us to come to him is as our father, right? Man, your kid comes to you to confess something. Your kid comes to you to be on your side and to admit to your guilt. They come to you humbly and sorrowfully. Would you ever turn them away? Never. That's what God's like. Hebrews 4 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God welcomes sinners. And if you are struggling with guilt this morning, head straight for him. Go to your dad. He welcomes you to sit on his lap. He will never turn you away. And finally, David says in verses 8 and 9, He says this, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. And what he's saying here, these are kind of his last words. He says, let me give you some counsel. Let me look you straight in the eye. He says, don't be like a dumb animal that is always wandering away. In other words, what he says is this, is if God removes your chains of guilt, don't go back to being a slave again. He says when God forgives you, uh, you, he removes that weight, now we're free not to repeat the same things that we did last time. We can Repent. We can go a different direction. We've got a power to live differently. He says. He says. When you when you feel guilt, when you feel freedom, learn to enjoy that freedom, and learn to hate living in slavery again. Don't wander away like an animal. Well, to wrap up here, there are so many people who live under the constant weight of guilt and shame. In fact, they've lived with it so long that they don't realize that life could be anything different. You know, like a fish underwater that doesn't realize the weight of the water is upon it anymore. But David tells us, we don't have to live like that. David had some major regrets. He had caused a lot of hurt in his life. And some of us in this room can really relate to that. But this morning, what my hope is and and what I really think God wants for each of us is that instead of relating to his guilt, that we might relate to his joy. What this psalm teaches us is that God wants us to be free, that God wants us to be happy. And the psalm teaches us that the happiest people in all the world are those who live in the freedom of of the good news of of the gospel. We, We live in the power of what Christ has done. And if, this morning, you are not living in that power, in that freedom, why not let God change that? Why not let God change that? There's one last word that's used in this psalm. It's the word selah. It's used twice. And I wasn't sure exactly uh, what that meant. So I asked the expert, Brandon, who studied music and the Bible, and he told me that people aren't really sure exactly what it means, but they think that it was a musical pause. So what they would do is they would sing for a little while and, and they would take a selah, they would pause and reflect on what they had just sung. And this morning, as we kind of moved towards the close of the service, we, we wanted to give an opportunity to do that, to take a pause. And so I'm going to invite the, the music team to come up. And I want to give you just a, just a couple of minutes of silent reflection. You may feel that you have um, boxes in, in your life, so to speak, that have, have, have been neglected for a long time. But I want to give you an opportunity to come to God in confession and uh, allow God to deal with, with whatever that sense of cancer in your bones might be. The group is going to lead us. You can silently uh, just spend some time to yourself.